Welcome back to the Health Guru. A podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Allie Burgess. And I'm Thomas Lake. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about vaping. What a spicy topic there. Let's break down some headlines. So actually, on July 28th of this year, WHO released its eighth report on the global tobacco epidemic. And this summarized national efforts to reduce tobacco use and also just kind of made it apparent that tobacco use is an important issue that the WHO wanted to tackle. And with the current pandemic, I think everyone has really been paying attention to that, understandably. But I like to remind everyone that back in 2019, kind of near the end there, we were really concerned about something called EVALI, or e-cigarette or vaping use associated lung injury. And it was this like strange epidemic. That word I think has taken a new meaning, but it's a strange <laughs> epidemic that was kind of ravaging through teenagers where they started going in the hospital and these people had really serious lung injury and i think in february 2020 the cdc reported 2800 cases requiring hospitalizations and 68 deaths and it seemed to kind of come out of nowhere but it really was part of this growing movement that no one noticed toward vaping one study found that in 2011 0% of teenagers reported vaping and then 2019 almost 30% of teenagers reported vaping so that's like almost a 30% increase over a decade yeah that's pretty substantial so the EVALI is an inflammatory response in the lungs that's triggered by inhaled substances. And really the problem in the research behind it is one hasn't been around for too long, so there's not really longitudinal research. And then also a lot of these e-cigarettes and vaping devices have different ingredients. So it's really hard to know what could be causing this inflammation. But one thing that has been identified is vitamin E acetate. Vitamin E acetate is used as an additive, and usually when vitamin E is ingested or if it's used topically, it doesn't cause any harm, but when it's inhaled, it might interfere with normal lung functioning. Yeah, I don't know about you, Allie, but back in 2011, when I was in high school, <laughs> I, I feel like it wasn't it wasn't really on the scene, right? It just, it, I don't know what I was doing, maybe hanging out at the mall next to the Auntie Anne's. <laughs> you know, I think that everyone was kind of at Hot Topic at that point. Oh, and... yeah, true. Hot Topic. Oh my maybe gosh. that's where the vaping Yeah, I mean, in medical school, we, we really focus a lot on cigarette use. And I mean, even growing up, I, I know we got all this like advertisements about how smoking is bad for you and right. don't smoke. But I'm, I'm just wondering what the landscape is now for teenagers. And even thinking about our current medical school education, maybe we should start asking adults, teenagers, everyone about their e-cigarette use, about their vaping use. Absolutely. And that's what really motivated this podcast was to learn more about vaping and e-cigarette use. And that's why we asked an expert to join us and learn more. Hi, this is Allie again, and we have Thomas here and Jeffrey Hardesty, uh, who is a research associate in the Department of Health, Behavior, and Society, and he 
received his MPH with a concentration in epidemiology and biostats from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We have him here today to talk about electronic cigarettes and vaping. And one of his projects includes the vaping and patterns of e-cigarette use research study, which I'm sure he'll get into. And we're just hoping to get a broad sense of how vaping has affected youth and what the implications are from a public health standpoint. So it's great to have you here, Jeff. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I'm just curious uh, to start how you got interested in this topic and your research since then. Yeah, so I actually started my research life at Hopkins doing work with the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center. And so we were looking at clinical trial enrollment and how to improve that specifically for lung cancer. And then that kind of segued over into the policy world because I felt that was where I could make my best contribution to public health. So I view tobacco control as one of the leading areas of public health. A lot of things that happen in our field end up kind of trickling down to other um, parts of public health. So there's, it's never a dull day. So vaping and e-cigarettes has been described recently as an epidemic. And to just throw out a statistic, I think in 2019, nearly 25% of 12th graders were vaping nicotine and half of these were daily users. And so despite all the media press and coverage, we are, we're assuming maybe some people don't know what exactly is the problem. And so can you help describe the scope of the problem? Yeah, sure. And I'll, I'll hit you with another statistic. So we actually have 2020 data now. It's pre-pandemic, but in, in high school, we have about 20% of high schoolers have used in the past 30 days, and it's also 5% of middle school students. You know, so that's actually a decrease compared to 2019, you know, which objectively is a, a, a fantastic thing. We don't exactly know the reasons for that yet. We can kind of hypothesize that maybe it's because of Tobacco 21 and where the federal government has and state have raised the minimum age of purchase from 18 to 21. And it could also be related to some much improved campaigns that have been put out there into the public sphere by the FDA to specifically put out health messages for, for young people. You know, dis despite these positives year over year, there's a couple things that worry me. Number one, these numbers are still very high. That's still one in five high schoolers and one in 20 middle schoolers. And over time, what we're going to see is it's almost like a tsunami of prevalence or of, of use of e-cigarettes across all of the, the, the entire age spectrum. So right now, like if you look at this information in like a table form, you'll see that adult use is relatively speaking low compared, you know, to what we're seeing uh, among high schoolers and, and, and people who are even younger than that. So that, that's first and foremost. I would say second, what's really concerning to me is that daily and frequent use of e-cigarettes among high schoolers is exceptionally high. So it's at, in 2020, it's at 61%. So to put that in context, that's 61% of high schoolers who are using at least 20 out of the last 30 days. That, that's pretty remarkable. And it still wow. says to me that we have a long ways to go in terms of making the situation better for young people. And just to put a, one more point on here, I, there's, Eight out of 10 people who are at this age are actually using flavored e-cigarettes. Okay. Wow. So, so, and this is despite the FDA banning flavored pods and cartridges, which are typically, they're most commonly thought of as being the liquid that you would use with like a jewel. So kids are still getting flavored products and we're really entering into this game of whack-a-moles. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. And something I noticed is that it seems like the focus right now is on adolescents, mostly teenagers, would you say, in the prevention space? Would you say that's about accurate? Yeah, yeah, I would. And I, I think where that's coming from is number one, adult use is still, you know, pretty low. At least we haven't, we don't have really good up to date numbers, but I think in 2016, it was it's certainly under 5%. It might have even been under 3%, you know, whereas of course the youth numbers are so high. And there's a lot of uncertainty about the long term health consequences of e cigarettes. So what we what we do know is that combustible cigarettes are, you know, exceptionally harmful. And so for adults who have tried everything under the sun to try and quit and they're working with their doctor and just nothing works, maybe e-cigarettes is a solution. I mean, I can't promise that you're not going to get sick from them. We, it's still a massive unknown, but I think that the focus needs to be on kids where your, people are going from zero harm to actually a place of harm. So I hope that makes sense. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it makes sense, but I guess I, I was surprised because I would think that adult use is at least higher, but it seems quite low compared to adolescents, and that's really shocking. Yeah, I mean, in absolute number form, you're probably going to see uh, higher use among adults just because it's a much larger sect of the population. But I see, yeah. Prevalence, like a, a, as a percent of the population in different age groups, it's much higher in young people. Oh, yeah, that's... That's something we learned in our classes, absolute number versus percents. There we go. Real world application. And so something that we really like to do on the health beats that we've done in other podcasts is to talk about like common misconceptions and debunking myths. And so do you think you can tell us about perhaps some common misconceptions about e-cigarettes and and some myths and kind of help us debunk those? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I would say two come to mind. The first, the first and foremost, the one that I get asked all the time is about the safety of e-cigarettes. So I've heard young people, young as middle school, even sixth graders asking me about this kind of stuff because they're, they're trying to understand it themselves. And the reality is e-cigarettes are not safe. They, they do contain carcinogens like heavy metals. That's things like arsenic, lead, nickel, chromium. And even some of the flavorants that are in, in these liquids that people are vaping are, are, are toxicants when inhaled. Of course, they might be safe for ingesting, but it's different when you're putting that into really sensitive lung tissue. You know, so I, I think there's a lot of general confusion among the population about this. And I think a lot of that comes back to some really savvy and extensive marketing that's been done by the tobacco industry and who also sell e-cigarettes, of course. And yeah, I mean, I just had a sixth grader the other day ask me about this. And the fact that that marketing is getting all the way down to them where they're confused is highly alarming to me. I would say the second big misconception is that e-cigarettes begin and end with Juul. Juul is kind of the Tinder that launched this public health nightmare. I love uh, <laughs> but, but they're definitely not the only major offender. You know, as I mentioned before, the FDA is now regulating flavors for devices that are specifically Juul-like, yet kids are still getting flavors. And so what's happened are kids have actually transitioned to a device that looks very similar to Juul. But instead of it having a, like a little pod that you put in, and then when it runs out of liquid, you put in a new one to the battery. Now it's just one device that's entirely enclosed and it just doesn't have pods, right? So we're in this game of whack-a-mole. And I think people just tend to think of this as like a monolithic product class. And the, the reality is it's very extensive. Wow, I, didn't, I had no idea, yeah. 
so yeah, so for our audience members that don't know about Juul, so Juul it was initially um, launched in 2016 as a new type of e-cigarette. And it started from actually two former smoker Stanford grads who promoted it as a satisfying alternative to cigarettes. It became very popular among young people and took over almost half of the e-cigarette market at that point in two years. So the product's quick rise in popularity is what prompted the Boston Globe to call it the most widespread phenomenon you'd likely never heard of. And a jewel cartridge or pod, as Jeff pointed out, contains just as much nicotine as a pack of 20 regular cigarettes. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's correct. And so these products also use nicotine salts, which allow very high levels of nicotine to be inhaled more easily and with less irritation than rebased nicotine that's used in tobacco products, including other cigarettes. So as you said, I mean, Juul is not the end-all be-all, and I'm sure since a lot of the regulations have been put in place, all of these other products are popping up to combat the regulation. But do you think that Juul really changed the landscape of e-cigarette? And how do you think yeah. its marketing has, has impacted the youth? Yeah, so I, I think Juul changed the game completely. So they, they came out you know, onto the scene in 2015, 2016, I think, somewhere in that range. My concept of time's a little fuzzy these days. But, you know, before Juul came around, e-cigarettes were this really nerdy kind of boxy device thing that was kind of niche. We, we talked about it in tobacco control as something that was on our radar, but kids weren't really picking it up. And then so when Juul came on the scene, I mean, they, I mean, they were doing some heavy marketing through social media, through influencers and celebrities and product placements with them, like it was pretty intense. And when you combine that viral uh, marketing campaign with the points that you made about the high amounts of nicotine and the nicotine salt formulations, which make it easier to vape, which I would love to talk more about too at some point here today, but that and the flavors and the flavors themselves, the, like the, the flavors actually make it. Yeah, the, and the fact that it looks great. Like a USB drive, I think, also makes it more appealing to <laughs> that, that, I don't know, maybe those are antiquated at this point with the cloud, but at least it's more accessible to those that, you know, are more, more used to flash drives than cigarettes. Yeah, absolutely. And they're concealable too, right? So easy to hide from your teachers that kind of, or parents, that kind of thing. And I think, I think we're kind of touching, and, and you mentioned also this, this kind of concern about health and perhaps like it, the, the trendiness is kind of uh, preceding any sort of discussion about health because when asked, approximately two thirds of Juul users aged 15 to 24 did not know that Juul always contains nicotine according to the Truth Initiative. And so, I mean, for me personally, I've heard from colleagues, friends that things like e-cigarettes, because it's just pure nicotine, it doesn't have the tar and the other sort of combustible gunk that's in a cigarette. So it must be healthier for you. But can you tell us a little bit about the risks of nicotine use? Yeah. So, of course, nicotine is the addictive component of cigarettes. And like you said, it's it's in e-cigarettes as well. That's that's why, of course, people, the first thing that they do when they wake up in the morning when they're smokers, they, they get their coffee and their cigarette. Or in the case of vaping, it, many people are actually sleeping with their devices. You know, it's like right next to their pillow and their cell phone. And they'll take it out and they'll mess with it just like just as like a fidgety type thing. Like it's it's very addictive. Now, I already mentioned earlier that there are some harmful 
ingredients that are in e-cigarettes. So we know that they're not safe. We do know that the concentration of those carcinogens are typically lower than what you would see in combustible cigarettes, but I'm not ready to go to a place where I say that they are safer or healthier at this point, just because as you guys might know from your, your medical school education, you know, you need to have a dose response relationship to show something like that. And that would be unethical to do in people, you know, and plus cancer can take 20 to 30 years to develop in people, right? And e-cigarettes have really only been popular for the last five to six years. So in, in kind of like the natural history of events, like I think it's just going to be a while before we have a clear answer to that. I see. So it seems like there's just a lot of unknowns right now. One devil's advocate argument people use is that, well, I mean, like e-cigarettes help people quit smoking. And I guess if they have these lower concentrations of whatever toxic carcinogens or chemicals, then, you know, it's, it's better than smoking. So what do you think you would say to those people? Well, I would say that the only people who should be trying to use e-cigarettes to quit are people who have tried ways that are tried and true that we know are safe and effective. So that includes like nicotine replacement therapy and talking with your doctor. There's some medications that you can take. And if you've exhausted all other options, it might be worthwhile to try. There's certainly lots of anecdotal stories. I see it all the time in the vapor study people put in the comments. I, I love e-cigarettes. I can, I can breathe easier. I can run again, these types of things. And you know, I want to be respectful of those arguments. I just haven't seen that be borne out in the data yet. And I think that there are still risks and people need to be knowledgeable that there are safer alternatives before you get to e-cigarettes as your option. Absolutely. And I think you're alluding to the fact that, like you said, we're talking a lot about these young people that didn't smoke in the first place and are turning exactly. to to e-cigarettes uh, as their first substance without the goal of quitting smoking, it's, it's their, their entry into the market. So that's the concern. I'm curious, is there any relationship or if, if there's any data on the a connection between e-cigarettes and any particular at-risk populations and like demographic groups or individuals with certain comorbidities and other diseases? Yeah, I'm, I'm not... I'm not aware of any. The, the people who typically use e-cigarettes tend to be white and wealthier just because the barrier to entry, I mean, at least among adults, the devices people are, I don't want to say mostly using because I don't have hard evidence for it, but anecdotally from the vapor study, it seems like the older you are, like the more advanced the devices and sometimes they're boxy and you customize all different sorts of things. But I think those are typically priced at a bit of a higher price point and it, it, maybe it prices out some of the people. So I, I don't see it necessarily as an inequality at this stage, just given the lack of information we have about the long-term health effects. But yeah, certainly if we found that e-cigarettes over time are a better alternative for adults who are, are smoking, then yeah, then we might actually have some inequalities on our hands and just making sure they're available to other people. Definitely. And while we're kind of in this like health sphere. I'm curious if we could go back to something you earlier said about the nicotine salts and, and kind of the, the I, I honestly don't know. So I'm curious what you had to say about that. Yeah. So nicotine salts are, it's chemically modified. So they basically, for any chemistry nerds out there, it's, it's a salt, not like table salt. It's a salt like as in chemistry where you have an extra <laughs> protein on it. So they're basically changing the pH of the nicotine in a way that makes it far less abrasive on your throat. So there's the nicotine salt formulation and then there's the freebase formulation. And 
Historically, cigarettes, the free base. So like when you smoke a cigarette, it can be quite harsh, especially for people who are not used to that. But, you know, Jewel kind of looked at this old research, you know, from a couple decades ago where the tobacco industry was thinking about using salts with cigarettes. And they kind of applied that technology to the liquids in their product. And so they knew what they were doing. They knew that it was going to be a lot easier for, for people to, to use this kind of nicotine. And they knew just how much nicotine was in this, in these products. And, you know, it's not unheard of to hear of young people going through an entire pod in, in, in a day or two. Oh, wow. And while the, the health effects of that are definitely concerning, it also sounds really expensive to go through one pod a day, just like how it's, it's expensive to smoke a, like a pack of cigarettes a day. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not super cheap. I think that, you know, a lot of how this starts through social means and it's like your friends are doing it and like you might pass it around or something like that at like a party. So the barrier to your first use, I don't think is very high. And the people who are using it for the first time, of course, you're going to get like a rush of kind of euphoria from using the product. And then that leads to more and more use. The next time you, you somebody offers it to you and before you know it, you're trying to buy buy your own. Yeah, and then that's the that's the slippery slope. So it's it sounds like the vapor study has provided a lot of qualitative data of users of e-cigarettes. Can you just kind of walk us through what the vapor study is looking at and what outcomes you're measuring? Yeah, sure. So we, we haven't published a whole lot of data yet. So essentially, this is the vapor study is it's a longitudinal online cohort study. We're recruiting people from all 50 states. It's adults 21 and over, so it's not not geared towards youth. But our main objective is to better understand how people use these devices, because like I said, they can get really complex. You can change settings, like you can raise the power, lower the power, you can switch out the coils so you can get different resistance and different amounts of vapor optimization that can go on. And nobody's really explored what those patterns really are and how somebody who's like a young adult who starts with Juul, they might over a couple of years quickly escalate to these more advanced devices. And, you know, that has health implications. And so the FDA and NIH are interested in this idea because understanding those patterns might allow us to better understand the potential benefits and unintended consequences of potential regulations that they might be interested in. So yeah, we're looking at a lot of things like you know we make people submit a photo of their most commonly used device and liquid and we're looking at display to see you know we're using ohm's law to look at the the wattage and resistance what Uh, a throwback (laughs) yeah it's also it changes so quickly from you know one month to the next and especially with marketing campaigns and and these regulations so it's hard to keep your pulse on exactly what is being used most frequently yeah, we're we're trying. We're trying. Most of the national surveillance studies are done once once a year and you know there's usually like a like a long delay between when the data is collected and when it's publicly available and often it's a couple years later. So there is certainly a surveillance component to like what we do and we might see some trends before some of the the larger like nationally representative studies that may be a bit more comprehensive in terms of their methodology. Wow. Yeah, that's wonderful. And and I, I feel like you also kind of touched upon this. We've we've talked a lot about the health risks and the doom and gloom and the world is falling down. I'm just joking. But I'm curious if you could help us learn about some of the positive sort of advocacy or legislation that has been passed to protect consumers and kind of move things in the right direction. 
Yeah, so the FDA is the regulatory body for, for most e-cigarette and cigarette-related regulation. Congress can kind of add to those powers or pass additional things that are maybe beyond their powers. Just most recently, Congress passed an amendment to something called the PACT Act, which prevents the shipping of cigarettes across the country, which effectively prevents the sale of cigarettes online. And so the amendment actually extends the, the authority of that to e-cigarettes. So sometimes I look at the internet as this amazing thing, but it can also be the bane of our existence when it comes to trying to to prevent some unintended consequences. Age verification is only so good. You can just take your parents' ID card or whatever to try and purchase them from the internet. So that's, that's one positive. They're closing that loophole as much as they can. There, There's been a lot of momentum in the way of flavor regulation or flavor um, flavor bans, at, at least at the state level. It's, this, this topic hasn't really reached the national level too much beyond what we've already discussed, but a number of states have passed this already, Massachusetts being one, I think New Jersey is another, and a number of others are trying to, to, to pass similar legislation. And then probably the last one that I'm probably the most excited about, it's actually not e-cigarette related, but it's actually about cigarettes. So in 2009, the, the FDA banned flavored cigarettes, but they left an exemption for menthol cigarettes, cigars, and pipes. I'm particularly con- I've been particularly concerned about the menthol cigarette component of this, because what you see is they ban it in 2009, and then as expected, flavored cigarette sales go down quite dramatically, but then for these other products, they go up. And what you need, what the audience should know about menthol cigarettes are that they're predominantly used by people of color, most notably African Americans. And so, what what has essentially happened is we, we've they've created this inequality among health outcomes by exempting them. So the FDA just recently announced that they're actually going to be proposing a menthol ban, which is a big deal. It's going to be a massive fight. The industry makes a lot of money from this. You know, menthol is super key and again, kind of dulling that effect of that harshness of nicotine. And it's a big market for them. So it's going to be a a huge battle. And, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of court cases and chances for the public to weigh in. So I'm excited for that. Would you say that the the exception oh. on menthol was mostly a push by the the nicotine and tobacco companies primarily? Yeah, of course. So I, I of course I'm not privy to behind the scenes. I, I can presume and opine that that played a heavy role and that they had put heavy lobbying dollars in place to keep that exemption in. Yeah, thank you. And I didn't know anything about the the menthol uh, cigarettes. And so that's that's illuminating, especially when it's disproportionately affecting the black population. So one question that I have about kind of the current legislation and all of this advocacy is how can our audience, how can we support the cause locally and and help spread awareness about this? Yeah, so I would say for this, the flavor bans in particular, those are at a state and local level and, you know, physicians, especially in medical students, residents, for those people who are listening, you have a, a uniquely strong voice that you can lend to this fight and it can be particularly impactful, you know, sending an email to your your local representative or setting up an in-person meeting with them. There's a bunch of local advocacy groups all around the country. Maybe do a Google search and find who, who you could get connected with locally and they can kind of help direct you from there. For, for the menthol ban, like I said, there's going to be a chance for people to 
weigh in, especially if you have maybe research evidence that hasn't been published yet that might be coming down the pipe. The FDA is particularly interested in that type of information. But weighing in at all is also impactful and just raising you know awareness that this is something people care about. And then if there's a court case, there's amicus briefs that either a group of individuals, an organization, or like AMA, or that's the American Medical Association, or sometimes even groups of organizations like, like a number of universities will sometimes come together and co-author an amicus brief, which is essentially their position on a particular issue either for or against. And the, the, the judges of those, of those cases are supposed to consider those types of arguments. That's really great to know. Yeah. And I think also as medical students and other healthcare professionals, one thing that we can do is probably just ask patients, build it into the normal routine. Do you smoke cigarettes? Do you vape? Because I think having that extra touch point and address these misconceptions at a doctor's appointment would be hugely helpful, especially when, like you said, there are a lot of young people who think that it might be safer than it is. Building it into your normal questioning and making it a safe space for them to share, yes, I I do vape and this is what I do and don't know about it will be helpful for us. Just a, a question maybe for you two then is how is this being spoken about in, in your own medical education, either in the classroom or you know, in a clinical setting? I think yes, but lim- in a limited way. I, I remember one Grand Rounds lecture that I attended at, it wasn't at Hopkins actually, it was at Sinai Hospital about vaping related lung injury, but it hasn't really been integrated as much in the preclinical education or even just talked about in our rotations. So I think after our conversation, I'm just definitely going to ask all the kids and adolescents that I, I see, because I don't think it's really being addressed. And probably some people don't even know about the scope of the problem and that they're not really rising it to the forefront of their priorities. What do you think, Thomas? I think like uh, exactly as you said, they really emphasize like asking about tobacco use, how many pack years do you have? But it, it, like this concept of e-cigarettes and things like Juul, it, it seems like hot and novel still. And so I think I've gotten exposure perhaps just from, I don't know, being a young adult in the world, <laughs> but I wouldn't say it necessarily in a formal sense, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, these, the change at that level kind of starts from the bottom up, right? So just educating peers around you. So if anybody is listening and feels strongly about this, talk about it with your, your preceptors and anybody who will listen. Absolutely. That's something I've noticed more recently is that, you know, a lot of these big, big changes that we're seeing and move on on a societal level really start with the one-on-one conversation. So that's what we're aspiring to do today. So just to close, are there any big takeaways that you want our audience to know about the e-cigarette research and industry in today's world as future doctors or just as advocates? What should we know? Yeah, I I think the takeaways are that e-cigarettes are not safe. E-cigarettes are not a monolithic product class. There's lots of diversity within it. The only people who really should be considering using e-cigarettes are adults who've tried every other means to try and quit in consultation with a physician. And I guess just advice is just you know, don't be afraid to to use your voice. You know, I think everybody, especially in the medical field, has a uniquely powerful voice that they can lend to this type of issue. So definitely take advantage of that. 
Absolutely. And especially question the marketing and the advertising that you're seeing or even the peer-to-peer information that you're getting. Because I think especially during the, the COVID pandemic, I've personally realized the power of just online myths and misconceptions that aren't fact-checked and kind of the barrier to finding out the truth in, in the midst of all of the information out there. So don't be, don't be afraid to question what you think you know about e-cigarettes or vaping because there's a lot of research and a lot of more information than what's being portrayed on commercials. And if you don't know, reach out to somebody who does, right? I think people in our field are, are quite open-minded to, to educating others as, as needed. And I'm, I'm really glad that although it seems like this is a really big hurdle, there's um, been some good like advocacy and legislation. And so hopefully like regarding the menthol, like just like Ali, I had no idea. So I'm really thankful that that is being pushed for and hopefully we can hear more soon. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for being here and helping to educate everyone. I learned so much and it's been great having you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. If you've made it this far, you must be really interested in current health news topics. Follow us on COVID Up to Date for news headlines related to the pandemic. And make sure to subscribe to The Health Beat on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a great review and let us know what topics you want covered in the future. See you next time. Thank you.